Welcome to the MacCast. This podcast is brought to you by a cutting-edge community of YMCA camping professionals through the Mid-America Camp Conference, prepared by camp people for camp people. I'm Megan, and I'm the camp director at Triangle Y Camp in North Dakota. My guest today is Dave Wright. Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. So to start with, could you walk us through your background in camping? What got you interested in camping, and how did you get started? Well, I was never a, um, a camper as a kid. I grew up in a, a small community in Indiana that did not have a YMCA, and uh, there was just never an opportunity. In fact, I'd never really heard of Y Camp, as a matter of fact. I didn't have my first camp experience until uh, after my freshman year in college when I was hired uh, as essentially the last person hired at a private boys canoe tripping camp in Ontario by the name of Camp Owakonzi. Uh, Owakonzi is Ojibwe for determination. And uh, it turned out that was a really good name for the camp because, as you're well aware, um, canoe tripping in the Boundary Waters is really uh, uh, takes a lot of determination. And yeah. uh, it was an experience that I really loved, had a, a great time. I did not realize at the time how poorly run the camp was, <laughs> but... Um, uh, I had a wonderful time, and it was, you know, it being my first camp experience, um, I was in seventh heaven, like uh, a first-year camper might be, or even a first-year counselor. And uh, shortly after that, though, I uh, went into the Army after two years of college, so a year later than that. And um, when I came out uh, after two years uh, in the Army and came back to school, um, I was taking a community recreation class, and I noticed on the board that there was a big poster that said that there was going to be a camp placement day uh, on a certain date and they were looking for summer counselors and I thought wow I'd be interested in doing that again and so I went to a camp placement day in the Union building at Indiana University and uh, it turns out that I was a hot commodity for the first time in my life I was a hot commodity. Nice Um, that's always a good feeling. uh, I was 21 years old I had canoe tripping experience and I was a guy and you know how camps are always looking for guys and uh, for certain positions you need somebody that's older and certainly if you're going to be on the trail you need experienced people and so um, I ended up uh, having a lot of offers and I won't go into the long story of how I ended up at Camp Tecumseh but um, in the summer of 1973 I had my first summer at Camp Tecumseh as uh, the canoe trip leader and led canoe trips in Michigan, Indiana, and in the Boundary Waters, and had a terrific summer. Um, Really loved that experience, became fast friends with the guy who was the camp director. He was in his first year, and and frankly, it was his first camp directing job, and so he was kind of learning as he was going going along, and uh, lo and behold, I ended up being there for 40 seasons, Um, so... I sort of went there and never left. Did 21-year-old Dave ever imagine that you would be at that camp for 40 seasons? Or 41, is that what you said? Uh, 40. No, I really didn't. Um, I, I came back for the second summer, and uh, I had started graduate school in recreation um, mid, mid-year and met my future wife and recruited her. And so she came um, for the, what was my second summer and her first summer, and uh, she was a very experienced camping person from New York State. And uh, so she led bicycle trips. We added bicycle tripping and backpacking to our, our adventure trips that second year. And uh, 
So when I got hired on full-time to start the environmental ed program in 1975, um, I'm thinking, you know, maybe I'll be here three to five years. Um, but God had a different plan, mm-hmm. and uh, so I got to stay a lot longer, and it was I would do it all over again in a flash. That's awesome. What a great story uh, to be able to share how, you know, God really put you in, in that spot for, for a really good reason. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. And uh, it was really, as it is for so many counselors and campers, it was a life-changing experience for me. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you've had a long history in camping, and I want to kind of turn um, to look a little bit at the MAC um, throughout that history. Can you paint us a picture of what the MAC first looked like when you got involved? Um, kind of, you know, wh- when was that and what did it look like then? And, you know, how did, has that changed to what the MAC looks like now? Well, I, I remember, well, I was completely unfamiliar with the MAC. Um, I got married in early January of 1975. And so my first day officially on the job was the morning after my honeymoon. And uh, I got up early in the morning. We'd gotten in late the night before uh, into a building that was, uh, had, at one point, had been the office. It was built in 1924 at Camp Tecumseh. It was really in poor condition. And I left my poor wife there <laughs> at about 5 o'clock in the morning when uh, the camp director and I began a drive to uh, Wisconsin, uh, to Lake Geneva, where the conference was held. I didn't know anything. He just told me we were going to go to a a meeting of a bunch of other camps, and I thought, great. And uh, so we ended up driving up to the George Williams College field campus. Um, Probably a lot of people that go to MAC now are not very familiar with George Williams College because it's no longer really operating. Um, It was, uh, for a long time, the Midwest um, YMCA College and lots of YMCA professionals were trained at George Williams College, and they had a field campus on which uh, they operated environmental education programs and were quite well known for it. Um, And so that was an an added plus because I had a chance to learn a lot there uh, talking to their staff. And uh, the the first thing I remember about the MAC that year was that I was completely overdressed. (laughs) When we got there and we sort of gathered for lunch, I'm wearing, I just come out of graduate school, I just finished graduate school, and graduate school is sort of a professional look kind of thing, even though it was a recreation program. And uh, so I showed up in slacks and, uh, and a, a dress shirt and wearing a sport coat. And, you know, I looked around the Mac, and it's very much like you would see today, with, especially if you're in Wisconsin, uh, with people right. with sweaters and, you know, lots of bearded folks from the North Country. And, and uh, were, were fleece and, vests as common then as they are now? Uh, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I quickly uh, realized I need to dress down here, and I really hadn't brought anything else. But um, so I... I Ended up uh, just wearing sports shorts most of the time. I think I had one sweater with me, and I probably wore it every day. Um, but I didn't want to stand out like a sore thumb. I looked like, you know, the presenter that had just arrived from mm. someplace, um, which definitely was not the case. But one of the things that I realized right away um, that is similar to the MAC um, today, wherever it's held, was that everybody was willing to share and everyone was very friendly. Um, it was a lot smaller. My memory of that is that there were maybe 60 people, and um, 
most of them were camp directors. There were very few program directors. Um, I felt really fortunate that I was a program director and got to be there. Um, um, but I met a lot of the old timers who were there. I, I won't mention their names specifically at this point, but um, I just was like a sponge, just like, you know, in, in 2019 uh, or 2020 at the MAC, all those first year people were just like sponges, right? Soaking right. up everything they can, gathering materials, all of that. And, uh, and I, I really had a great time. One of the memories I have of it I, was I had I had no idea about this, and actually the camp director that I was with I don't think had any idea either. But the the common thing um, at that time because they'd met at George Williams College for a while was at night to go out to the Playboy Club, um, <laughs> which was located there on on the lake. I guess it probably must have had a lake view or something, and so whole contingent of people were going out to the Playboy Club. Uh, the camp director and I um, were not really interested in doing that. It was a little like, what's going on here? And, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. But um, people came back with lots of stories the next day, as you can imagine. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Um, that ended up changing. That sort of thing ended up changing a bit later, which I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about later. But the other memory I have of that first camp uh, or first uh, MAC at that location was um, Lake Geneva is a really large lake. And the conference was almost always in January, and the lake was frozen over. Now, I'm a, I'm a guy from a small Indiana town um, and had never really been on big water, and I'd never been in the north country other than in the summer camp over Kansi. So when we walked out of the evening session and were sort of walking back to our cabin along the trail along the lake where the cabins were, the sound of the ice moving and cracking mm-hmm. and groaning was just a, a whole new thing to me, and I was completely mesmerized by it. Um, and uh, that was a great memory. I remember looking out across the ice to lights on the other side of the lake and thinking, wow, this is a whole different world from uh, where I grew up. And that's one of the great things about moving the conference around, I think, is we get to see different things, experience different things in different parts of the country. And uh, so that's always been a blessing from the MAC. Yeah, that's easily been one of my favorite things about it, besides, you know, the people and the connections, is getting to see all these other camps, um, like Camp Tecumseh, where we're actually going from Act 2021. Um, it's been really interesting to watch all of the developments there, and having gone to, I believe this will be my second or third Mac at Camp Tecumseh, just seeing the updates from, you know, a couple of years ago when we had it at Tecumseh to coming back to, to Tecumseh now. Yeah. The Mac ended up moving from George Williams College, uh, in, I don't know, just a few years later, maybe two or three years later. I'm not sure exactly why, but we ended up moving to a conference center uh, outside of Madison, Wisconsin, on Lake Mendota. And the conference center was operated by an order of nuns. And the nuns, you know, did all the cooking, they did the housekeeping, all of that. Mm-hmm. And uh, they really did a great job. And it was so much nicer facility-wise than uh, the field campus, which was really kind of an older camp. Um, it had a nice campy feel to it, but it wasn't nearly as professional. And I think the feel of the Mac became a bit more professional. There was a lot more um, media available at that time in terms of projectors and screens and that sort of thing that that uh, conference center had. And the other tradition that changed while we were there was instead of people going out drinking at night, the, the, the tradition started that on the last night of the Mac, everybody went out for ice cream. There was a big ice cream store there. 
And oh, so that's fun. Almost the whole, almost the whole conference went out for ice cream, and that went on year after year, um, which was really nice. You know, people still went out, you know, early in the right. conference and had a few beers together and that sort of thing. But um, the ice cream social part of it really became a very um, beloved uh, tradition of the Mac for many years. Of course, now that we move around from camp to camp, it doesn't work out quite as easily mm-hmm. because people don't know exactly where to go and, and those sort of things. Nice. But my early memories of, of the Mac, um, you know, I must have gone for at least the first 15 years. I probably went every year. Um, and the memories are almost always about the people. Mm-hmm. Um, and as happens for, I think, people of all ages, um, the people that you get to meet uh, while you're there, um, many of whom are, you know, just legends, uh, icons in the field. I remember... There was a guy who was the camp uh, Manitowish director for many years. His name was Elmer Ott, and everybody looked up to Elmer Ott. He ran the best camp, and Manitowish was highly successful uh, in those days as well as currently. And I remember um, him speaking about building a strong camp board, and uh, uh, one of the people that introduced him talked about that his, strong was str- his board was stronger than the Milwaukee board. Um, which he had been associated with evidently at one point in time before they became an independent. So Elmer, who was retired at the time but led a session, was just a, a deep well of knowledge. And then we had uh, Whitey Lures. Uh, Whitey just passed away, as a matter of fact, but for many years he was the national camping guy and traveled around and visited all the camps. And I remember uh, being in a session with Whitey one time and he was talking about the five characteristics of our strongest YMCA camps. And oh my gosh, everybody wanted to hear what those were, you know, because everybody wanted to be known as one of the strongest YMCA camps. And right. I thought, wow, I need to, to, to suck this up. And I thought I might just share a little bit of that. I still remember uh, yeah. what he had to say, but um, one of the characteristics was, and I'm, I'm not gonna put these in any particular order. I can't remember the order, it was too long ago, but um, he said one of the, the characteristics of our, of our strongest Y camps, and he didn't say best, Mm-hmm. He was careful not to say best, but he said strongest, and that meant um, long-time success over over a, a long time, and that every year you would know that they were going to be full, um, um, people were going to have great um, experiences, etc. And he said continuity of leadership. He said in almost every instance, um, when there was a change of top leadership in those camps, the new person did not come from outside that camp. It was somebody that had grown up in the system or at least been a part of their of that camp system and knew the culture and knew the leadership style and, and that sort of thing. So he said continuity of leadership is so important. And he said um, uh, realistic fees. And this is interesting because, you know, so often we, we are looking at if we lower the price, can we get more people and those mm-hmm. sort of things. And he said we have to use realistic pricing. And he said all of our top camps – have realistic pricing. They're not the most expensive, but they, they're definitely uh, in the uh, above the midpoint line. And he said that's so important because you have to have some, some money left over in order to be, do the things and take care of what you have. And uh, if you don't do that, then you're always scraping and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how you're going to do things. He also said that um, one of the uh, characteristics was that all of the strongest camps had strong spiritual influence in their camp. Um, either through chapels or um, traditions or some combination thereof. And it was, he said, the sea was very apparent in the program of those camps. 
And that's one of the things I'm not sure how true that would be today. Um, we certainly know a few camps where that's certainly the case, but I'm not sure. I'm, you know, I'm just not close enough to the operations of all the camps anymore. And the third thing was that, that um, the facilities were really well cared for. They might be old, but you know, they never looked like they were falling down or in poor condition, and the grounds were always well kept. He said, you go to one of our stronger camps, and when you go in, you know somebody cares for this place and they're taking care of it. Um, and those things really stood out to me. And, and we made those, um, uh, you know, one of the great things about the MAC, if you get to go with additional people from your camp, is the drive home. Mm-hmm. Because on the drive home, you're doing all that sharing and, and, and some goal setting and talking about what we need to do better at and those sort of things. So I really love that. Um, so, yeah, Whitey Lures was one of the key people. Um, there are two other people I'd like to mention. Um, yep. There would be more, but uh, one was another national camping guy. His name was Chuck Kajawa, and he was so articulate. And he always came in a suit and tie and uh, because he the national headquarters at that time was in New York City. And so he lived in New York City, and he wanted everyone to know that camping professionals need to look professional. You need to act professional. And uh, he emphasized that, um, and he was a, an excellent speaker and, and always was uh, focused on that. what's important about camping is what happens in the life of the camper. That's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. It's a life-changing experience, and he would talk about individual things as we all could, you know, in telling our stories. But the, the really unique thing about Chuck was he had memorized an amazing amount of poetry, and he would, he would, in the course of his talks, and he would come and talk almost every year. The MAC was the big regional conference. And uh, he always had one or two poems that fit perfectly into the flow of his message. And uh, I can remember writing down the titles of poems and thinking, oh, I can use that someplace else. So mm-hmm. Chuck was an inspiration, that's for sure. Um, and then the final guy um, I want to mention is um, a guy named Harley Van Ackeren, and uh, he was a regional uh, YMCA consultant. And when it was happening in Wisconsin, uh, both at Lake Geneva and uh, in Madison, Harley always came until he retired. And he retired at a late age. I'm not sure how old he was, but he had to be pushing 75 or 80. Um, and the really unique thing about Harley, who was very low-key and very seldom led a session, but he did a lot of one-on-one talking with people. But the unique thing about him was uh, prior to the, becoming consultant, he had worked for individual wise, and he had helped start five or six YMCA's. I mean, YMCA camps, wow. and that is really a legacy, isn't it? Right. I mean, what? if you help, if you help to start one, that would be terrific. Yeah. But that was sort of Harley's thing, and I think people hired him if they wanted to start a camp. Then Harley was the guy to talk to, and if you get get Harley to come in, he was great about putting the lay group together and. The, the important parts of, of site selection and choosing the property, etc. And uh, Harley was another deep well of knowledge and always was behind the scenes encouraging people. And at, I remember the thing about Harley was he didn't tell you how to do things. He asked you good questions that led you in the right direction. And I've never known anybody that could ask questions as well as Harley. What a so, unique skill, and what an interesting background to have started that many camps. Um, but I love those conversations where people push you and ask the right questions. Like, what a meaningful moment. 
yeah, he was he was an amazing guy. Um, and and the sad thing is that the the stories of many of these people are lost now um, because you know we've moved on. Everybody's aged, and and uh, camp directors who knew them have, are are long gone. I was a young pup in those days. You know, I was mm-hmm. in my late twenties probably when Harley finally retired. So. Yeah, so that was a long time ago. Uh, yeah. yeah, I'm thankful to have an opportunity for um, for us to kind of capture some of those stories here and be able to share them for hopefully a long time. Yes, yeah, absolutely. When was the last Mac that you went to as um, still in the camping industry? I mean, it's always kind of a part of you. You don't really leave camping, but um, when was the last time you attended Mac? I've been to the last four or five Macs for okay. a day. Um, I'm on the Macy, the Mid-America YMCA Camping Incorporated right. um, board. And so we meet at the Mac uh, annually. And so I've been to the Mac for several years in a row. And I actually, when I was preparing to retire, I, I retired eight years ago at the, at the end of the 2012 season. And um Sort of having gone back to Mac a couple times in my last couple years uh, at Tecumseh, um, when they were encouraging um, what they called, I think, more seasoned directors to come back, um, and uh, you know, and, and seeing um, you know some of the older guys there, I was thinking to myself that you know I need to do this after I retire. I need to come back and you know just rub shoulders with people and be an encourager and that sort of thing, and so. I've, I've uh, continued to do that. Skip Wilkie was really the mm-hmm. inspiration for that, you know, Skip having been there all of those years and continuing uh, his involvement um, when, you know, when he really didn't need to do that. But he loved Mac and he thought, I can help. And, uh, and so I wanted to do something a, a bit similar, different than, than uh, Skip. You know, he had a little different bent than I did, but uh, I've really enjoyed going back. Yeah, I know young camp directors like myself, not to call you old, that was not my indication um, or uh, intention, but uh, I know camp directors like myself for sure really appreciate hearing um, from more seasoned camp vets like yourself. And um, I remember moments of like sitting at a table with uh, longtime camp directors and uh, it's such a such a wonderful thing that I really appreciate about the Mac is that long well of history that kind of grows with the conference. Yes. Yeah. Um, and there's so many really great experienced people and with, you know, we lose more every year as people retire and move Mm -hmm. on to other things. A few people have left camping and done other things, but, um, you know, I think, uh, the committee should continue to encourage those people to come back. Um, and, uh, you know, just engage, um, it would be interesting to have a session where they, yeah, you know, the the more seasoned people, maybe even ones that have retired now, could uh, say these are things that I, re- I I would say to uh, camp directors today to, to keep in mind as you develop your career. Right. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Are you uh, uh, putting a plug in for a, a session at Mac Twenty Twenty One? Is that where we're going here? <laughs> well, if that happened, I would I would uh, be happy to participate in it. I'm not pushing for that per se, <laughs> but you know there are times when, um, and I'm sure this happens to you um, as you look back on things that you've had and you think, boy, I wish I knew then what I know now. Mm, oh, for sure. And nobody told you, you know, and uh, so I'm sure that you know if you, if you got Dave Sherry and mm. other people together that. Um, 
have been in it for a long time and they'd say they would have things that they'd want to share with with younger uh, budding camp stars right speaking of you know kind of looking back and hindsight is 2020 um is there anything that sticks out to you as something that you have really seen how the mac has grown and changed throughout just the history that you have known of the mac um yeah, I think uh, two things that are really fabulous is that there has for many years been a growing number of women involved in women in leadership roles. And, uh, you know, Scott Barrasen and I looked to get, worked together at Tecumseh for lots of years um, before I retired. And we often said that if our two wives had run the place, it would have really been successful because both of them are, are far beyond us in, in so many ways. Um, so seeing women um, involved in, in really top leadership roles and moving up, you know, and looking at camping as a career moving up is uh, one of the things that I really love. But uh, equally or more so is uh, more and more people of color involved. Um, you know, that's been one of the shortfalls for years of camping is that we just have struggled with uh, having people of color uh, both and significant numbers in campers and significant numbers of staff. And, uh, you know, to the point where sometimes, you know, you can name off um, campers and staff members, you know, that were involved and did such a great job that you loved and you wish you could have had 10 of them like that, right? Right. Um, And I think we still struggle with that to a certain extent. Um, And so it's great to see that growing, though. If you had compared... I'm, I'm not sure there were. I'm not sure there were any people of color in those early days. Um, at least none come to mind right off. And uh, Ann Derber, who ended up at Manitowish, you know, and, mm-hmm. and held several important roles. Um, she and Ellie Orbison and the gal who was in Milwaukee, whose name Jen Jen Phelps. Um, they were sort of the shining lights of women, but they were very alone for quite a while. Um, and there weren't many women going into camping professionally. Um, and now, you know, there's many more, which is wonderful. Yeah. I also think, um, you know, from a personal perspective that Mac has changed in the lack of spiritual emphasis and, you know, body, mind, and spirit and the C and the YMCA, uh, I think are really important elements that are in so many places really being ignored. Um, at least it appears that way. And, uh, having a little more uh, emphasis on that, um, I think is important. Um, because I think that's an important part of how kids grow at camp. Um, we see that all the time at Tecumseh. It's a, it's an important part of the Tecumseh program, as you're probably aware. Mm -hmm. And many kids uh, talk about, uh, chapel as being their favorite part of the week, which is pretty amazing when you look at everything else they get to do while they're there. And uh, I think it's important for um, people in leadership and the, and the top roles and people in the committee to lead by example in the spiritual realm as well. And uh, that doesn't have to be, you know, preaching a sermon, but um, acknowledging faith in some way, whatever they're comfortable with doing. But mm-hmm. I, I think that's something that's been lost. And and I think it's a loss, not just for the Mac, but for the campers. 
Yeah. Yep. I can totally hear where you're coming from. Um, and speaking of some of these changes and things, you know, in this year alone, 2020 has been quite the year with the pandemic reckonings with racial injustice. And somewhere in these past few months, we completely skipped over the murder hornet situation. Um, do you have, <laughs> do you have any reflections on times that camps have faced situations like we faced these past few months? Um, have camps been active in previous, you know, social justice movements or um, do you have any reflection on, on moments where we've kind of seen this through camping? Well, there have been uh, some challenging times in camping, some of which were not, uh, didn't turn out to be as bad as people feared. Uh, I remember when Lyme disease first came on mm-hmm. the scene and that was a huge deal. Uh, it ended up being a much bigger deal in the East right. and a bit more in the North country. Uh, than it was uh, across the Midwest or the West. But people were really concerned whether camper families would allow their kids to come to camp because of Lyme disease. Unfortunately, it didn't turn out to be as as great a threat as, as we feared it might be at one point. West Nile virus um, mm-hmm. you know, came along as well, and that was a big deal. I remember uh, NBC News did a, a broadcast from Camp Tecumseh about our protection program. And I remember we were getting ready to watch it. They taped it and it was going to be on the next morning. So the next morning we're waiting for it to come on. And I'm listening to the anchors of the, of the news, the morning news, and it, they're using such scare tactics. I'm thinking, this is horrible. Nobody will want to come to camp because they, right. they get everybody afraid that you know, terrible things are going to happen. Um, and again, West Isle didn't uh, turn out to be nearly as bad as, as we all feared. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm, and then of course, uh, um, neurovirus, um, where, you know, everybody gets the stomach flu and they're throwing up and, mm-hmm. and camps have closed for a session or two, um, became much more common. And, and, you know, we all tried to do things to combat that. So it wouldn't hit our camp and those sorts of things. All of those, um, were real and, um, were threats, but none of them, had anywhere near the impact that uh, current uh, COVID-19 is having. And so this is really historic times. I mean, if, if a camp closed for two weeks because of norovirus, that was a huge deal. And everybody calculated, wow, that's going to cost them, you know, a bunch of money. Um, and people get laid off and all the other repercussions. Mm-hmm. And that was that due to their reputation and all of that. But, you know, this has hit everybody. And... And it's real, and I think camps deciding not to run is definitely the best choice for this summer. And I hope that all of the camps can survive um, because, you know, it's going to be really difficult for camps that are operating on the edge. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping that um, those YMCAs and those camps are going to reach out um, to their alumni for support. You're probably not aware of this, and probably many people that attend the MAC are not aware of it, but back in uh, the, the 60s and the very early 70s, there were over 700 YMCA resident camps across the country, and today there's about 350. Yeah, um, wow. I did not lost. realize the number was that high. Yeah, it was, it was huge. And, uh, um, and I think that number from... Um, I'm trying to think of his name right now. I'm spacing his name. He used to be a camp manager a long time ago. But um, the part of the reason for that was, um, one, they were small, and they originally just served the people in their local community from the local Y. Mm-hmm. And they weren't strong enough 
to re, they, you know, after they'd done that for a few years and the cost of everything kept going up, they couldn't meet expenses. They couldn't make it pay. Well, they couldn't raise their fee enough to get local enough local people to come. And, and so those camps ended up getting sold. And likewise, when the central Y, when the downtown Y got into financial trouble for whatever reason, um, the camp was an asset. And so if it was sort of on the edge, um, they could sell the camp and reduce their debt. And that mm-hmm. happened to a lot of camps. Um, and many times, you know, the camp was sold for, well, I'm just going to pick a number off the ceiling. You know, they're going to sell a 200-acre camp for a million dollars. And the realtor that picks it up turns it over and sells it, you know, a different way for $5 million. Right. And the wife's just not very good at real estate. So the reason I mention that is I'm hoping that doesn't happen because lots of wives are struggling, lots of camps are struggling, and I'm hoping that camps do not become an asset on the books that can be used to reduce debt. Um, I understand why that might have to happen sometimes um, because, you know, you want to, you have to stay in business, right, if you're going to continue to serve the community. But I'm hoping uh, that won't happen. But never have I um, seen anything like uh, what is happening now with social justice and racial inequality. Um, And I think it's a really positive step that it has been forced to the forefront. Um, And I I think good things are going to come out of a very difficult time. I was uh, um, reading something from a missionary that I'm involved with, and um, in her communication, she was talking about scripture where, where the scripture talks about groaning before God births something mm. uh, into the world. And, you know, there's a lot of pain and some suffering that happens before new birth happens. And so I'm hoping that that's a, a valid analogy for what's happening now. This is a difficult time in so many ways. And, uh, and but if we can bring about um, better equality and real justice um, and it's not going to happen overnight, regardless right. of how much is said now. But if we can get a foothold, and I think that um, more people are aware of it and joining in the conversation now than has ever happened that I can recall in the past, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think that that will uh, be carried over somewhat into camp. Um, I think camps have to be careful about how they carry it into camp. Um, but I... Um, I, I think it's a really good thing that it's happening. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that it's going to help in terms of um, more success in recruiting uh, uh, staff of color, particularly African-American staff of color, and more campers. But those are other problems that mm-hmm. you know are on the horizon that, that we need to be thinking about as camps. Right, for sure. Yeah, I think um, there's the old adage of, you know, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. But I think right now, like... We, we are shouting uh, for that social um, equity to happen. And I think that's a really yeah. powerful thing. Yeah, I agree. Well, with a long history in camping, Dave, people must ask you often if you have any favorite camp memories. Do you have one that you could share with us today? Yes, I, I do. Um, <clears throat> and it happens for my first year at Tecumseh. When I came to Tecumseh in 1973, um, there were only about 25 people on the staff. And I was the new guy. Um, I was a little bit older than most of them who were college students, but there were some older uh, unit director and program director and that sort of thing who were a similar age to me. And I remember um, 
going to chapel just as a staff on the first morning of staff training. I think we'd come in on, on Sunday evening or something. And so Monday morning after breakfast, we were at chapel, as is the, the tradition that comes as everybody goes to chapel after breakfast. And uh, I can remember sitting there, you know, in this little rustic chapel uh, outdoors. Um, it's called the Green Cathedral at Tecumseh because of all the trees that uh, are over it. And uh, you're looking down the Tippecanoe River, and we were singing Christian songs, uh, and they'll know we are Christians by our love and um, those sort of things. And uh, I'd never been a church-going person. I did not have. I'd never made a, uh, a Christ commitment. Um, and yet the, the feeling that morning in chapel with only 25 people was something that I've never experienced in my life. And I can remember sitting there, having been to Vietnam and back and, and uh, done a lot of things in my life. Um, I thought this is something really different and I really like it. And that was really a life-changing moment for me. Um, I learned so much from other staff, um, not necessarily from a person who was up leading or, or playing the song or, or whatever it happened to be, but just how um, people talk to one another. Um, I was still leading trips in those days, and I can remember having some amazing spiritual discussions with campers on the trail mm-hmm. um, and, and a co-counselor that was leading trips with me. And those were powerful, powerful experiences. So, yeah, that was, those are really good days, uh, to say the least. Yeah. yeah. That's a favorite memory, definitely. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I've got 10 camp questions next. And uh, some of them involve your favorites. And I know favorites sometimes change. So it's kind of whatever is your favorite right now in the moment. But are you ready for my 10 camp questions? I guess. I'll give it a try. All right. What's your favorite camp song? Uh, the bear song. Oh, nice. Uh, what about your favorite camp food or snack? Baked oatmeal at Camp Tecumseh. What is the best moment in the camp week for you? Whether it's, you know, opening day right before breakfast, that chapel time that you were talking about. When you're standing in camp, what is your favorite moment? What's the best moment in the camp week? Well, you know, uh, I was there for a long time. And mm. um, um, closing campfire is one of the best times of the whole week. And a particular time at closing campfire, when we do closing songs, most of the campfire is very camper-based with lots of performances of kids that have been taking clinics during the week and they get to show their stuff so do we speak and then there's you know uh, counselor stunts and skits and those sort of things <clears throat> and a lot of crazy songs but at the end of the campfire um uh there's there's quiet songs uh, generally christian songs that um everybody in camp and at tecumseh closing campfire there's probably 750 people and uh, they're all wearing their unit shirts, so it's rainbow of colors from their units. And everybody's arms are around one another, and only the campfire is on, and they're singing together. And uh, then there's some closing things that are said by the camp director uh, to the whole camp, which really uh, cap the whole experience. Uh, and they're very traditional. It's, it's God saying the same thing that I said for many years. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's little adjustments to it, but... Um, because at that time, as a camp professional, you have the chance to have the ear of every camper and every staff person. And so what you say to them about loving one another and making a difference in the world is an awesome opportunity and responsibility. And so that was one of my favorite moments. 
Yeah, that's fantastic. I think closing campfire is probably one of my favorite things in the entire world. Um, what an incredible experience. Yeah, for sure. All right, what is the grossest thing you've ever had to do at camp? Um, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> when you've got so many probably to pick from after having been at camp for so long, but maybe they um, don't even stick out as gross anymore. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> what, what could be considered gross it isn't so much anymore. But I remember mm-hmm. one of the things that I really didn't like and I ended up having to do it multiple times, and that was I had to crawl under the crawl space of the home we lived in that was built in 1924 and it had almost not enough room when I crawled down the hole to get under there because pipes were frozen I had to get these pipes unfrozen Mm -hmm. and um, it was filled with spider webs and you know um, raccoon dung and you know stuff like that I had to crawl under there uh, sliding along on my back um, sort of exhaling to get my chest as small as possible to get under the the floor joists and then try to work um, with a flashlight under there in freezing, you know, cold weather. Mm -hmm. Um, And I ended up having to do that multiple times because it just, you know, there was no good way to keep that that crawl space warm enough that the pipes didn't freeze you. So we'd actually let the water run and stuff like that. But that was pretty gross, yeah. Yeah. kind of makes me shudder just thinking about it yeah it wasn't fun yeah but it was all part of it you know right right if you could work only one camp program for the rest of your life what would it be ropes high ropes um uh i say that quickly because um kids overcome so much there Mm -hmm. and the feeling they get when they complete it is fabulous and the whole group of campers uh, anybody that's on the ground, you know, become major super encouragers. Mm-hmm. And um, to see everybody together encouraging in that way and to see people who are doing things they didn't think they could do um, be successful is really great. And even when people are not successful and they can't quite do all that they'd like to do, the encouragement and love that they get from everybody is so overwhelming that they still feel great about themselves. And inevitably, if there's time in the schedule, um, they come back and and try it again Mm -hmm. and often are successful the second time. Yeah. What a transformative experience. I love high ropes for that, for that reason. Amen. Yeah. And so many things like that can happen in other program areas, of course, but, but, uh, high ropes is, you know, a pretty visual one. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, what's the furthest you've ever been away from camp and run into a camper staff member or someone else connected to camp? Um, uh, I was visiting um, um, Haynes, Alaska uh, for the wedding of one of my nephews, and um, we stayed a little bit longer. We'd done some other things while we were there with the family, and we took the ferry across from Haynes two and a half hours to Skagway, and Skagway's kind of a tourist town, you know, because of the gold rush and all of that. Mm-hmm. And we're walking through these crowded streets, and I hear somebody call, Gabe, right And it was a gal who had been on our staff. Uh, she'd been a camper, and then she'd been on our staff for multiple years. And uh, she knew Beth and I really well. And uh, she was on her honeymoon in Alaska. <laughs> and we ran into her on the crowded streets of, of Skagway. It was amazing. 
That's awesome. Uh, do you have a favorite piece of camp memorabilia? Of camp memorabilia? Mm-hmm. Um, well, two things. Um, uh, I still have the wooden name tag that I uh, received in 1975. Uh-huh. Uh, and I wore all of those years, you know, every opening and closing day. I wore it virtually every day because I was, in, you know, um, often were greeting people who were coming into camp and that sort mm-hmm. of thing. And so that name tag, and I still wear it to the Mac. Um, so, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite things. And then uh, one of the things that the, the board had done for me when I retired was a they commissioned a painting uh, of me and Beth together and there's some little side paintings around it of uh, me at different places in camp. Well, and that's really, uh, cool. that's, really that's, uh, that's uh, definitely one of my favorite things. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, what is one wacky phrase that you've heard a camper say? I know if I can do that after they've completed something, I can do anything I put my mind to. Love it. Um, name a person in camping who has greatly impacted you. Um, I think Brian Roop. There are a lot of people that had an impact on me. I've mentioned some of them already. Mm-hmm. But Brian and I worked together. Tecumseh was his first job. And uh, <laughs> and uh, he started just on the maintenance staff, but then he became the outdoor ed director, which is what he was sort of waiting on when he came on board. And uh, I remember uh, the first outdoor ed program he worked was uh, one of the winter programs. And uh, and I, he came over to my house after he'd finished uh, on the last day and, and the kids had already left. You know, it was cold and snowy. I can't remember what year it was. Um, and he sat down and I said, so what do you think? And sort of like the big, what do you think of the big mm-hmm. picture? Now you're the director. And that's what he said, oh, my gosh. I had no idea how much energy it took. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, and he's, you know, gone on. But that wasn't why his influence on me was more spiritual um, than anything else. Um, Brian came to Tecumseh as a very strong believer and had a wonderful way of just sharing God's love with people in a very low-key way. And I thought, um, I, I want to be able to do that as effectively as Brian does. And, uh, yeah, we, we became fast friends, and, yeah, I love him dearly. Yeah. He's done that everywhere he's gone. Very much so. I think that's a really accurate description of kind of just the general feeling that, that Brian Roop give you, gives you. Um, I was lucky to, when I first started at Fitch, kind of catch the tail end of his retiring um, from Fitch. And even though I never worked directly with him, uh, what a wonderful guy. I cannot say enough good things about Brian Roop. Just a truly incredible person. He really is, yeah, no doubt about it. All right, my last question. What is one thing in your camp career that you're really proud of? Um, I, I guess I would say, um, there, there's a lot of things that you could say, but um, I, I'm really proud of the opportunity that Beth and I had to start the outdoor education program at Tecumseh in, uh, in 1975. Uh, that's the reason I was hired. Um, uh, it, and I uh, came on and, and we started that in the spring of 1975 with three very small groups of schools, of three, three small school groups. 
and uh, you know, and then in the fall, I think we had a dozen more, and it just bloomed. And so here we are, you know, how many years later? Forty-five uh, years later, fifty years later, mm-hmm. um, whatever it is, and you know, it continues to be the largest resident environmental education program in the state of Indiana, which it's been for years and years. Over 10,000 students a year um, take part in that program. And the reason I'm so proud of it is, one, it's longevity. And the, the, I only ran it for seven years, and then I, I was moved over into the summer camp role. Um, and every director after me, every outdoor ed director has made it better. Uh, every one of them, and it's so much better today. I mean, you wouldn't even recognize it from the original program. They do such a great job, and so creating a, a, a caring attitude and an understanding about the natural world um, is really passed on to lots and lots and lots of kids. And it's not so much uh, what they know when they go away, though they've learned a lot of things. It's how they feel about their responsibility for the environment uh, when they leave. And of course, the icing on the cake is that a huge percentage of those 10,000 kids um, would never have a resident camp experience mm-hmm. uh, if it wasn't for, for that program. And so, you know, hundreds of thousands of kids have come to camp and had a camp experience because of that. So I think that's the thing I'm most proud of. Yeah. And a, a very worthy thing to be proud of. It is truly an incredible uh, accomplishment. Yeah, I give all the credit to the Lord for sure. Well, Dave, we're kind of coming to the end of our time together tonight. Um, thank you so much for joining us here on the Matcast. I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to kind of hang out with us and uh, give us your history of your time, both in camping in the Mac and some reflections on our, our world right now. Um, is there anything before we sign off here that you uh, wanted to say that we didn't have the opportunity to earlier in our conversation? Um, no, just uh, take heart, I would say, to all the camp people out there. This is a difficult time for camping. And uh, I'm, I'm guessing that there will be camp people who listen to this broadcast who are not sure whether they'll be in camping next year. Mm. Um, and I just say take heart um, because you never know where the Lord's going to lead you. And what you've learned in camping, even if you never go back to camp again, will allow you to positively influence the lives of other people, both adults and kids, wherever you go. So always look for those opportunities. Well, thank you so much, Dave. I really appreciate you jumping on with us here today. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. I look forward to seeing you at MAC. Yeah, we'll see you there. And you can see us at the conference for MAC 2021. Registration for the conference will open this fall. We'll be sure to keep you updated, and we hope to see you there. You can find us online at ymcamac.org, find us on Facebook at MidAmerica Camping Conference, and follow us on Instagram at ymcamac. Also make sure you like, subscribe, review us, all of those things for this podcast. We'd love to see your input and your information. In the future, we hope to include a Mac or camp story at the end of each podcast. So please head on over to our Facebook page or our Instagram, send us a DM, shoot me an email, and let us know what is your camp story. This is a podcast that focuses on our Mac community and focuses on you, and we want to share your story here. We'd love to hear from you.
This concludes this episode of the MacCast. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to you joining us next time. Until we are back together at Mac.